1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you have not may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of, the ar- of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this, your word. God, I thank you that these words are a comfort to us, even as they are a comfort to the Thessalonians. God, I pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be soft. Father, we pray that you would help us to love you and to trust you. That in you we would find our shelter all the days of our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, my daughter did the reading this morning. I would love to have other readers. I don't always need to be the one that reads, and it doesn't have to be just my daughter either. It's not just a family monopoly. Um, so if you would be interested, you or your child would be interested in doing the reading, please let me know. I'd be happy to put you on the schedule, um, and I'll get it to you in advance. You can practice the whole nine yards. I'd love to have more participation, especially in the reading of God's Word. So let me know uh, if you're interested. Um, this, if you're here, if you were here last week, um, we talked about sexual ethics, and this week, the rapture. Um, so you're really hitting a good two week stretch here. Um, this is kind of, this is one of the rationales for, uh, for just preaching through books of the Bible because I probably wouldn't schedule the topics that way. That's, that's not how I would go personally. Um, but the text teaches us what we need to hear instead of us coming to the text and and trying to pull out of it what, what we think we want. The Thessalonian church here is, is facing uh, the, the real stuff of life, both last week and this week. And this week, Paul is addressing their grief, their worry. And he wants to tell them why they ought to have a different kind of grief in their life. And to do that, he reframes the present and light of the future so that they can properly understand what it is that is going on right now and have hope that is anchored and secured in Jesus. That's, that is what this passage is about, these six verses. Now, I grew up in a particular kind of evangelicalism in, you know, I was a kid of the 90s. Um, I, I remember being in my church's little 
office building thing that we were renting for this church plant. And uh, being my, I think my parents were there to help vacuum. There was no custodian service, so people just took turns vacuuming or something. Um, and so me and my sisters would just run around and play and, and hide and, I don't know, mostly do what we're not supposed to do, I would assume. And uh, I think we were hiding from each other, and at some point I just felt like the time for that was over, so I went to go find everybody else, and nobody was there. And I was like, and if you're, if you're my age, you know exactly what I thought. <laughs> the rapture happened, and I'm alone. Um, I've been left behind. I can't believe this. Uh, and, and of course, uh, I, you know, found my, I wasn't left behind. Um, I found my mom or my sisters or whatever, and, and, and I was safe. I, I am astonished at the number of people who have very similar stories to that. Uh, they, they suddenly found themselves alone and realized Jesus had come back. They are now forced to face the tribulation hellscape that was uh, awaiting them um, because this kind of narrative, this story about the way the world was going in had so inundated popular culture. And now it's sort of just the way that people think about what the Bible says about how the world ends. It took, I don't know, 15 years getting all the way through college before somebody sat me down and was like, that story is not in the Bible. Do you realize that? And I was just like, what? <laughs> I didn't know that there was any other kind of account for the way that things would end. And now, that really especially matters if you're paying attention to what Paul is actually writing for, right? He is writing to provide comfort to grieving people, and one and a half verses of that comfort has been used to tell a story that is not mostly about comforting you, in my experience, it is about scaring the absolute daylight out of you to be sure that this really bad thing doesn't happen. And I would say that that is a real problem if we have strayed so far away from the central message and point of this passage. The, the question that's being asked centrally is, what should we feel about those who have died? In some ways, it's a lot more fun to deal with, you know, the Kirk Cameron left behind story that we can sort of write potentially if we take some things out of context from one verse. Instead of dealing with the real truth that this passage is about, you are going to die. You are going to die. People that you love are going to die. And most of us are probably sitting in this room and it's not going to. It's have died. We have people that we love who have died. 
And that is the, just the common story of what it means to be human. Is that all of us have a list of people who we've loved, who we have lost. And that list is not going to shrink. It is only going to get longer. How do you deal with that as a Christian? How do you reckon with that grief and that weeping that is both present and still to come for as long as you live? The Thessalonians are facing this question as new Christians. There is not this long history of thought. Not only are they, they new, but Christianity is new. And so they are on the, the, the edge of the grave with the only resources that have been provided to them by their culture. And pretty much everybody in the Mediterranean world faces death with complete uncertainty, fear, and finality. The grave is not some place where you bury people and you imagine some people went to a good place and some people went to a bad place. Largely the story that people tell when somebody dies in this place and time is there's a shadowy underworld and they've gone there and we just hope that they're okay. That's the best version, really. There is no version like, you know, their presence is with us. There's no version like they're happy now of paradise. It's just the shadowy underworld has consumed yet another one. And Paul is writing to tell them there is a different story in the world. There is news of a different kind of thing that has happened in and through Jesus Christ. So that now your orientation to the grave is fundamentally different. And at odds with the way the rest of the world is operating. And we need to hear this instruction. We live in a world that has only a slightly modified version of the Greek version. We live in a world where increasingly the bulk of our larger culture has no ability to deal with the grave. Our whole culture is oriented towards youth, of exalting youth, of staying young, and exalting the young. And watching people age and die is something that we are decreasingly able to do. We, we more and more do not put older people on our television screens, on our advertising. The days of relatives and loved ones being brought into your home to die are gone for so many people. Most people envision death happening in a sterile, sterile hospital environment that's medicalized and closed off from your real life as much as possible. We cannot handle the grave. And you can, I think, the, I don't want to say funny, it's not funny, it's like frustratingly laughable though. 
when some public figure dies, especially too young, you can see people struggle for the vocabulary of death. Like I, I, I remember whenever it was a few years ago when Robin Williams died. Just this incandescent, bright, beautiful, hilarious spirit, overwhelmed and crushed by despair and died. And there's this collective sense of loss but the only thing that many people can say is, generically, rest in peace. And my question is just, what does that even mean? When, it, when so many people say this, rest in peace, can you even provide any definition to this sort of empty platitude? Rest in peace. And most people cannot. Most people can just say, at least they are not suffering anymore. And it sounds an awful like the Thessalonian world that Paul is writing to. Christians have a different orientation and posture towards the grave. And Paul is teaching them that our posture is fundamentally one defined by resurrection. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And because of that, Paul says, you should not fear that the one in Christ that you have lost has been lost to you forever. But instead, just as you will see the resurrected Lord Jesus, you will see your resurrected loved one. That is the story that Paul is telling when he tells what will happen in the end. This is a passage about the return of Jesus. Christians universally confess in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that Jesus will return physically and bodily. That's an important part of what Paul is teaching here. Jesus will return to this world that he made physically and bodily. And he describes this return, there's a blast of a trumpet, and, and what happens then in response to the resurrected Lord Jesus' presence is resurrection. That the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, that he, he says, will wake up and rise. And not just rise up out of the ground, but rise to meet him. Now Paul is almost certainly using imagery that the Thessalonians have in their recent cultural past. When the Roman emperor would come, came to visit their city, the city exited the city to go meet the emperor and usher him in to celebrate his coming. So when Paul describes the dead in Christ and all of those who are still living when that comes, rising to meet him, they are meeting the invading and victorious emperor of heaven and earth. And they are not vacating the scene. They are not going to meet him 
and exit stage right. They are going to meet him in the sky and usher to him to the earth that he has conquered. It is the end. It is the victory party. It is the termination of all of their worst enemies. So Paul is saying that the terminus of all of this is the victory of the resurrected Lord. Your hope then, Thessalonians, as you face the grave, ought to be very clear. The person, the loved one in Christ who dies does not stay dead forever because the one who has conquered their own soul has conquered the grave itself and he will not allow the grave to have its final say. So then you weep and you mourn your loss. But it is not a loss of forever. And what we must be careful to do is people who attend to and listen to the instruction here and avoid mistakes of perspective. Paul is trying to correct one perspective that is so easy to get sucked into is this is all there is. The world that I'm living in, the flesh that I am embodied in this moment, the system that I see in front of me, the creation that I see, the people that I know, this is all there is. And for many people in our world, this is explicitly what they believe. Everything that exists are the things that you can see and touch. And when you die, it is the end of all things because all you are is what I can see. There is no part of you that goes on. There's an extinguishment of your life, and then that is it. And most Christians can recognize that's not what I believe. That is not what we believe. People are more than what you can see. And the unseen part of who you are was meant to continue on and does indeed continue on. So Christians can usually easily recognize that. However, there's a version of that that Christians easily do slip into that I easily slip into. My whole view of everything gets calibrated to what I am experiencing in my life right now. The comfort of my life, the comfort of my flesh, the objectives of my career, the accomplishments of my family, the things that I can see with my eyes are the only thing that I set my hopes by. And so while I would look at this other version of this and say, no, no, I absolutely don't believe that, what my heart betrays is that I sometimes often do believe a version of that. This world is not all there is. When we put out communion before you, we do not teach you that all that is before you is bread and wine. When we put the bread and the wine before you, what we say is that there is an unseen spiritual reality 
And when you taste with your lips the wine that God has poured for you, by the action of the Holy Spirit, you feast spiritually on the risen Lord Jesus. That principle that there is more to this life than what you see with your eyes flows from this table into everything that we do and believe. And your hopes and mine ought to be corrected to not be sucked into the sort of momentum of this world, to be so deceived that everything that matters is only what you can see. We have, to, we have to stay away from that perspective and be corrected out of it. But we also have to be corrected out of this perspective that this world is a rubbish bin. It is so corrupted and compromised that the only thing that we ought to hope for is the ability to endure to the end and just hit the eject button and get out of here and wait for God to just do something with this, namely set it on fire and get rid of it. Far too many Christians have lived in this space. The world is irredeemable. And should be flushed away as soon as possible. And fortunately, many more Christians today recognize surely God who made the world and said it was good would not take defeat on his account. Surely God would not let sin have the last word on the world that he has made. That cannot possibly be true. Which is good. God is not going to abandon the world he made. He's not going to abandon humanity. He's not going to abandon creation. He will redeem what seems irredeemable. But again, there is a quieter version of that story that is easier for us to receive, to imbibe, to believe. If you watch enough news, you will believe a version of that story. That what you receive on your screen, in your hand, or on your television is spinning to you a version of that story that the world is a disaster and if only I could be in control, if my party could be in control, if the right people could be in control, then it would not, but they're not in charge, so therefore the world is a disaster. It is irredeemable. Nothing in it is good. And you may not even consciously say that, but what you feel in your heart is despair. Everything is so irredeemably bad right now that it must be dispensed with. And see, these are things that leach into our hearts without our thoughts even paying attention. And those things that leach into the undercurrent, the subterranean caverns of your affections, they really matter. 
And when you and I see that we are caught in despair, if you and I see that we are swept away in the tide of presentism and only staring at our stuff, we ought to come awake and recognize that is not the true story of the world. Those things are not true. Yes, there are bad things in the world. Yes, there are good things in the world. Those things do not define the whole story of creation. What Paul insists for the Thessalonians and insists for us is that our gaze snap to Jesus. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. It is Jesus who defines our approach to all of reality and indeed the most serious, scary, mournful thing that we can ever contemplate facing, which is death itself. Jesus is the defining point of fact anywhere and everywhere in the universe. And so we cannot be discipled by our lack of attention into accepting the lies of the world that will in one sense either make us to wander down the pathways of despair or sleep our way through life, content with everything that comforts us now. The truth of the gospel is very clear. As expressed in the Heidelberg Catechism, our only comfort in life and in death, is that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The only comfort in life and in death is that all of us, body and soul, belongs to Jesus. And so now... We stand at the edge of the grave, and we don't pretend. We don't say, this isn't that bad, actually. We don't have to just say, well, they're in a better place now. No, no, no. Christian funerals are sad. Do we understand that? Christian funerals are sad. Because death is horrendous. It is a violation of creation. And we have lost somebody that we love. People too many times have come into church for funerals and otherwise and been told one way or another that they ought not to weep too much because they have lost someone. Jesus wept. If you can memorize any verse of the Bible, it is that one. Jesus wept because death is awful. So the loss that you have felt is real. It is terrible. It should be mourned. And if Christians have lost the ability to weep over death, we have misunderstood something and we have lost something. Death is terrible. Christian funerals are sad. But Christian funerals are also hopeful. At the same time, they are both things. Because while death may be horrendous, 
Jesus is alive. While we weep now, our weeping has an expiration date. And many of us are caught asking the question, how long? How long? How long will we carry this grief? How long? And all I can tell you is, that is a biblical question. And I do not know the answer. I cannot pull out for you a giant end times chart and checklist everything for you that needs to happen before Jesus returns. People have been trying that for about 1,700 years, and it has never worked out. I'm never pulling that chart out for you. The question is enough. How long, O oh Lord, will you wait? The response from the scriptures in both First and Second Peter is twofold. You wait because the Lord is patient. And you are a recipient of his patience. So while you weep, and it is difficult, the Lord is up to good. And he is patient so that he might do yet more good to his world. The second thing in 1 Peter is... <coughs> The inheritance that God has won for you is kept for you. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The thing that you would set your hope in cannot be corrupted by the terrible power of even death itself. You should long for Jesus to come back. You should long for it. You should do good work. You should do your best. You should act with God working in the world. Be an agent of redemption. And you should long for that inheritance to be delivered to you in the hands of the resurrected Lord. How long, O oh Lord, will you wait? We do not know, but he will be faithful to you in the midst of your grief and your sorrow until the very end when he makes an end of it forever. If you are here today and you have been caught in the grips of your life as you know it, that your whole emotional state and livelihood is tied up in the friends that you get to hang out with, the fun things you get to do, the bills you have to pay, the job that you secure to pay it. It's time to wake up. Your life is not all about those things. You were made for not less than that, but more. And you need to recognize the presence of Lord Jesus.
And if you are here today and you've been caught in the grips of despair, the sin that you wrestle against, the sin that is in the world, the death that has overwhelmed your vision, if those things have weighted you down, that is not all that there is. And you as well need to open your eyes and to see the resurrected Lord Jesus. He is coming. It has been a long, long time. But he is coming to make all things right. Today is time for all of us to wake up and not put our hopes in anywhere else except for him. He is the only one who is undefeated in the face of the grave. Put your hopes there and in nowhere else and let him be your comfort in both life and in death now and always, to the praise of his name and your great good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us, your people. We thank you that you have purpose to redeem the world. God, we're, we're so grateful that you have come to save us from the power of the grave. And Father, I pray for people who are facing the realities of life without you. They are doing it all on their own. God, I pray that you would not allow them to be distracted and convinced that this is okay, it'll be all right as long as they do X, Y, and Z. Any place, God, where any of us are finding our comfort outside of you, God, I pray that you would bring those things to crumble and that you would recenter our life around you. Father, I pray for all of those who have felt the talons of the grave sink into their life. The ones who have lost beloved parents, siblings, spouses, friends, children. And Father, I pray that you would invite their grief so clearly that they would feel permission to weep over what is absolutely lamentable. And they would recognize that you are the God who has wept with and for them. God, I pray that you would help all of us to see that you are the one who at that friend's tomb was moved not just by grief but anger. Help us to trust you that one day you will execute your wrath on death itself. Help us to wait until that day comes. Shore us up, O oh God. Let our eyes be lifted to you. 
that we might be filled with hope, we might be filled with longing, and that our hearts would be trained day by day to wait on you and to wait for the day of our salvation. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we're grateful that you will love us until the very end as you promised. It is our only hope, Lord. And in you, our hope is sure. Amen.